0: This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about coming together in a world that pulls us apart. From Oakland, California to Hamilton, Massachusetts, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. If
1: our culture is so fixated on youth, then why are older people happier?
0: When I was 15 years old, I discovered that I had a superpower. My freshman year, our high school distance running coach spotted me among the sprinters and asked me to join his group. I told him thanks, but no thanks. I liked my 13-second race. But six months later, I decided to give distance running a try. My first race was a JV two-mile. It was the most pain I had ever been in. But I came in second place. From that moment on, I was hooked. I ditched the sprints and became a half-miler. All my life, I'd been insecure about my abilities, the sensitive kid who got nervous when I was put on the spot. But on the track, I became powerful, important, exceptional. I set school records, earned an athletic scholarship to a Big Ten school, entertained visions of becoming an Olympian. I felt invincible, like there was no limit to my potential. My first week at the University of Wisconsin, I ran the fastest mile of my life, in practice. My teammates were some of the best middle-distance runners in the nation, and in workout after workout, I did my best to prove that I deserved to be among them. But as the weeks turned into months, it got harder and harder to keep up. I was the fittest I'd ever been, but I was tired all the time. At night, my aching body would keep me awake, In the morning, I'd feel creaky and old. Running had become a daily chore. I taped my goal time to my dorm room mirror and visualized myself winning races. But every time that starting gun went off, I could immediately feel that something was missing. The gears that had once helped me kick past my competitors were gone. I couldn't remember the last time I'd felt strong. When I met with my coach in his office... He said that maybe I was psyching myself out. There was a name for that, one I swore would never apply to me, head case. It was the kiss of death for a distance runner. It meant that I'd lost the magic, that my superpower was gone. A hamstring injury cut my track season short and began a cycle of injury and fatigue that would continue for the next two years. Looking back now, I think it's likely that I was experiencing overtraining syndrome, a condition that wasn't being talked about much at the time, but that some doctors now say can ruin a runner forever. It can make even young athletes feel old and tired. My senior year, I quit the team, even though it meant losing my scholarship. I still went on trail runs with my teammates, but I felt like an imposter. For years, I'd been the fast runner. Now, I was just a has-been with an identity crisis, a young person who suddenly felt old. That year, I ran the Boston Marathon with my older brother at a pace that felt easy to me at the time. And it was fun. I joined my college a cappella group and changed my major to creative writing. I met and fell in love with my husband, Nate, who didn't care how fast I could run. He just wanted to know me. I do still run, but it's no longer the thing that defines me. I can still finish a decent 5K, but my fastest days are behind me. During this pandemic, I've mostly traded running for walking. I'm still nursing those old injuries that started in college. One of life's harshest realities is that eventually we all break down. It's the problem of aging, the inescapable truth that for the majority of our lives, our bodies are in physical decline. My teenage superpower meant that I experienced that breakdown prematurely when I was at the prime of youth. 20 years later, I can see that quitting the team was one of the best decisions I ever made. It set me on a path that has taken me to now, but a tiny part of me still wonders about what could have been. If I'd gone to a different college or had a different coach or given myself a chance to recover instead of racing every workout, Would I still feel young and powerful today? I'll never know. But even if I could go back and coach my younger self, I doubt it would have made a difference because no one could tell me what it was like to be me. A few older adults in my life tried to warn me, but those cautionary tales were still someone else's story. That's the thing about aging. You can hear stories of what's ahead of you, but you never really believe it until you get there. Our team here at Shelter-in-Place includes people from three decades, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So today, we're exploring aging from the perspectives of people who are in it right now. We all have our reasons for wishing that we were younger, or older, or thinking that the age we are right now is a good one. Here's Nate to start us off.
1: I'm the son of an Uber nerd. My dad was high school valedictorian, state chess champion, Phi Beta Kappa, got his PhD in three years. I didn't have a singular focus, but at least I could win the camp ping pong tournament, jump down a flight of stairs on my rollerblades, climb our brick building into our second story apartment window when we forgot our keys. When Laura and I met 20 years ago, she met one of the criteria on my checklist for my ideal woman. She was athletic, but running? I didn't get it at all. The weekend we fell in love, she was in Boston to run the marathon. The only time I ran was after a ball or a frisbee on a sports field. But since I liked her, I tagged along for her pre-race easy run the day before. After we got married, my bafflement at running gradually transitioned to tolerance, then acceptance, then understanding, then identification, then taking the final step, buying those running short shorts. Endurance sports psychology is worth a quick aside because running, and even more so running hard, is puzzling to outsiders. It used to be puzzling to me. What training offers is immediate feedback, a clear relationship between input and output. In short, a sense of control. With parenting, you often don't know how well you've done till years later. With a relationship, you can put in the effort, but your partner can still be depressed. With work, anything from a recession to a merger to a personality clash with your boss to a client's whim can lead to a layoff. But with training, you put time and sweat and focus in, and you get fitness and pride and endorphins out. It's a guaranteed mood lifter, self-esteem booster, and ice cream justifier. Many of my peers make more money, own bigger houses, drive cooler cars, go on fancier vacations, but I still had my fitness. Running was what kept the dad bought away. I had my first few wrinkles on my face, but I could still fit into clothes I bought in college. I'd worked for that, was proud of it, and it was a crutch for my identity. Training hard also meant discovering the hidden places of the spirit. I'd traveled thousands of miles under my own power, persevered through shadowed valleys, earned solitary oxygen-starved vistas. It made me feel special. I thought often of legendary soccer coach Anson Dorrance's line, the vision of a champion is someone who is bent over, drenched in sweat, at the point of exhaustion when nobody else is watching. That was me. I was in my 40s. I wasn't old. I was fit. Almost every run or bike ride for the last 15 years, the idea that I'd followed out the door is that if I trained right, I could beat yesterday's me. Unlike Laura, I was still getting faster in my 40s. There was still a faster, fitter me out there. The capstone was when I ran my sixth marathon at age 42 and won my age group with a personal best time of 2.47.43. Of the millions of runners in the United States, only about 500,000 of them finished a marathon that year. And my time put me in the 99th percentile. But then, in the fall of 2020, I strained my butt. Sounds like a setup to a joke, but you use your glute muscles for basically everything. Standing, walking, running, squatting. I took time off, biked instead of ran. But even then, that dull ache and soreness in my glute wouldn't go away. For the first time in my life, I felt the age that I was. I felt old. If youth means potential, maybe aging means accepting that a better version of myself exists only in the past. The phrase, coming to terms with something, sounds so defeatist, so old. But that's what I'm having to do for now. Pausing is one thing, but the door slamming shut forever on physical possibility? The quest for a better me ending forever? In the face of physical decline, how is acceptance, not just resignation, dressed up in zen clothing? Even after months of being injured, I don't want to accept the voice that says, maybe you can't have it all. Maybe you have to be content with less. Maybe your body has finally reached its limit. The time since I injured my glute muscle has been the most depressing time in my adult life. No endorphins, no time to myself, no healing ritual of sweat and shower. Training was what had made me burn the brightest, so now I felt like a bulb. The dimmer turned down. Simply waking up in the morning, stiff back, sore glute, brain foggy, makes me feel old. It's a feeling I still can't get used to. It's not how I imagine myself at this age. For so much of my life, I was the guy who looked years younger. When I was a kid, this is often humiliating. Short, skinny, and bespectacled, I was a head shorter than all the boys and many of the girls in every childhood and teenage picture. I finally reached a normal range height of 5'9 around my 19th birthday, but I still had the face of a prepubescent choir boy and could count my facial hairs on both hands. At my first job as a copywriter at an ad agency, I remember wanting to be, or at least appearing to be, older. I resented having to pay my dues. I had so many ideas. I was so special. I had such a unique perspective. Why couldn't employers see that? Didn't they know I graduated from the honors program? I didn't know then that being good at school doesn't always equate to being good at a job or at life. Some of our shelter-in-place apprentices are in their 20s. I've often been impressed with how much more perspective they have than I did then.
2: I'm Alana Herlands, producer here at Shelter-in-Place, and I'm about to turn 25. As a young woman in her 20s, I feel pressure to literally be everything at once. Ambitious and laid back, intelligent and comforting, sharp and caring, funny and sexy, witty and compassionate. And it's exhausting. I can both look at that pressure from an arm's length and find it ridiculous, and also feel it as a powerful current, a voice in the back of my head, urging me to do more, try more, be more. I love knowing that my whole life is ahead of me and that I can make almost any decision on my own. But it's also really scary to have so much potential to impress or disappoint.
1: Alana is a recent college grad, but with a better resume, stronger work ethic, and more maturity than I had at that age, In four months, she's earned a promotion from apprentice to producer because we've been blown away by her creativity, generosity, and initiative. So I was disappointed to hear that not everyone she'd work with could see all that. So
2: far, my experience is that people are either really interested in what I have to say or don't care. I'm either very mature and smart for my age, or no one asks me what I think in meetings or takes my ideas seriously. At my last job at the New York Times, I eagerly asked a senior editor, what do I have to do to make people take me seriously? He didn't hesitate. You'll have to try to prove yourself for a lot of your 20s. I can get behind the idea of earning your keep and showing what you're capable of doing, but I also find it a bit demeaning and backward. Companies want to hire younger folks, more people of color, but then once we're there, there's often resistance to change. What if employers assumed that the people they were hiring came in with skills and new perspectives that would benefit the team and saw it as part of their role to guide and develop those strengths? What if we focused on how our differing perspectives could create something powerful? Being in my 20s feels at once like a lot of pressure and also very freeing. I feel most at ease during those untethered hours when I'm taking in the world in real time. On the whole, my body at this age feels powerful. I can walk for 12 miles on a sunny spring day with my boyfriend and feel brand new the next day. But it doesn't always feel this way. Every day, more than 50 billion cells die in our bodies. For most of my adult life, I've had recurring upper back pain for two minor herniations in my cervical spine. On the worst days, my head aches and my arms go numb. When this happened for the first time a few years ago, I went into full-on panic mode. I didn't sleep through the night for almost three weeks. When I did fall asleep, I'd wake up gasping and sweaty from nightmares. It was my first dance with my own impermanence. The first time, I no longer felt young and invincible. Thanks to great doctors, movement and meditation, most days I am totally pain-free. But for several weeks a year, my upper traps, those muscles at the back of your shoulder blades, get so tight that it hurts to move my head. I know now that the panic and fear that I experienced that first time made the actual physical pain a hundred times worse. Now, when the tingling and numbness come to visit, I pause and surrender. I don't fight it. I say, hey friend, nice to see ya. We'll be okay.
0: I'll be right back with more of this story right after this short break. Now more than ever, we need reasons to celebrate. While you may not be able to go out someplace special, with brick and mortar wines, you can bring the special home make it even easier, they're offering shelter-in-place listeners free shipping. Use the code SHELTER at brickandmortarwines.com and get free shipping of brick-and-mortar wines right to your front door.
1: I can appreciate the good things about my age, but at the same time, struggle with the challenges. As I've aged, I've grown into myself, become a better friend, husband, father, and son. But I've also traded my BMW for a Subaru, and now for a minivan. The idea of going out on a Friday night makes me tired, and I haven't even tried TikTok. Teens and 20-somethings do report some of the highest life satisfaction levels. People in their 40s, like me, report the lowest happiness. These days, I think less about what's ahead and more about where I am right now, which sometimes isn't where I wanna be.
0: Our fading bodies aren't the only challenges we face this year. We've been calling season two of Shelter in Place Pandemic Odyssey, because these episodes have charted our long and sometimes circuitous course from one coast to another, through the challenges of job loss and pandemic parenting, to rethinking our future and starting a new business. Like Odysseus, we've often lost our way and wondered if we'll ever get home. There's a scene in Homer's Odyssey where Odysseus is shipwrecked on the far-flung island of the Phaeacians. King Alcinous, encouraged by the goddess Athena, holds a feast in honor of his mystery guest. At the banquet, the bard Demodocus sings about the triumphs of Odysseus's youth. That song, for Odysseus, is deeply discouraging. He's no longer the young hero of the Trojan War. He's so overcome that he puts his head down and weeps, right there at the banquet table. The young Phaeacians look at Odysseus and say, looks like a has-been, I bet we can beat this old guy in a track meet. Odysseus tells them that he was once a great athlete, but the hard knocks of sailing and fighting monsters have beaten him down. He can't run anymore. His legs have lost their spring, but he can still throw the discus. He reluctantly joins the track meet, wowing them with his epic throw, but his success doesn't bring him the comfort it used to. He just wants to return to his old life, to another time when he still felt young.
1: Part of aging is that reckoning between the person you were, and the person you are, and the person you're becoming.
3: My name's Michelle O'Brien. I'm an apprentice here at Shelter-in-Place, and I am in my early 30s. In contrast to Nate, I've always looked old for my age. I used to be an actor, and even when I was in my teens and early 20s, I was regularly cast as sassy grandma, mom, the old ugly crone who lives under a bridge and eats children. Mostly, I wore this maturity as a badge of pride, and I always suspected that my mid-30s would be where my true self belonged, that all the painful, delicious, exhausting, transformative, capital B, becoming, would be over and done with, and I'd have fully arrived. Sitting here at 31, to my surprise and delight, I am both more settled into myself and simultaneously not done cooking. I don't care as much as I thought I would about the big life-in-your-30s milestones, like having kids or buying a house. My younger self, so adamant about adhering to society's many shoulds and musts, would be shocked by this change in perspective. But now I get a secret thrill from my windier journey. My life may not fit norms, but I get to live it deliberately rather than by default. At the same time, I am all too aware that my aging is going to be received differently by our culture than a man's. When I was younger, I was always adamant that I'd age gracefully. No dyeing my hair, no Botox, no regrets about the laugh lines on my face. And I still believe those things, but I also have a multi-step daytime and nighttime skincare routine. Wash, tone, serum, moisturize, overnight mask, even dipping my toes into the retinoid pool. The kind of self-care that, yes, is fun and rejuvenating, but increasingly feels requisite. Nate and Alana's stories about feeling their bodies aging brought me back to my own memories of playing in college Ultimate Frisbee tournaments. We'd play four 90-minute games on a Saturday, we felt elastic, bulletproof, zero to full speed ahead, party that night in a dorm basement, crash on someone's couch, then wake up the next day and do it all over again.
1: As Professor David Blanchflower found in his research, there's a universal U-shaped happiness curve. On a graph, it looks fittingly like a crooked smile. The left side, representing the teens, peaks. Then happiness decreases steadily through the 20s and 30s, bottoms out in the late 40s, hello, and then rises higher than it started through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. The research covered 132 countries and controlled for education, marriage, and job status. So if our society is always telling us that being young is the best time of life, why is it that old people are actually happier? Being 44 and injured feels like just the latest threshold in a stairway going down to the bottom of that happiness curve. That first big, my body's not working, moment is one aging threshold. Another is your first big, I could have died, scare, like when Laura and I pinwheel down a rocky double black ski slope in Lake Tahoe. Another is your first really bad car accident, seeing that some things can never be fixed. And then of course, there's a threshold where you start thinking about taking care of your parents as much as they think about taking care of you. Becoming a parent maybe the most, wait, I'm not ready for this yet, threshold. It's the wildest feeling ever when they discharge you from the hospital and you're just carrying this new human being in a car seat. It's like a bag of groceries. Alcohol and cars and guns, you're supposed to have a license for. But they just let any old parents take a baby out of a hospital. They're just gonna let us go? They're just gonna let us walk off with this new person? It's the biggest, I can't believe this is happening moment I can never remember. You walk in as two people, and you walk out as three. Not that being a parent is bad, but if being young is the ability to be completely absorbed and present in the moment, then being a parent makes you old because awareness of your kid is always just around the corner. Keep thinking about this happiness curve. Why are older people happier? I understand the research, but in the context of my current injury, I can't feel it. I can't live into it. Psychologist Margaret Cox Henderson observes that the middle of one's life, the part typically filled with demands from work, comparisons to peers, caregiving for children, caregiving for aging parents, or both, can feel the most unhappy. I can relate to all those things. Dr. Henderson writes, As the end of life nears, priorities shift towards savoring life, love, and this present moment together. This gratitude for what matters most, she explains, is more present the more we feel how fleeting life can be. We don't value what we have until we see that we may lose it. She's talking about older people being mindful of losing life in general, but that last bit of valuing what we may lose, or in my case, may have just lost, really hits home. That quest for hard-won physical excellence is what I'm not sure I can let go of yet. Feels like a highway exit that I just missed. Can I still turn around? Can I get back on my original route? Or should I just try to accept that I'm on a different journey now? Dr. Henderson also points out the upside of aging. With age, the focus turns away from social competition and towards social connection. During a slow, mellow bike ride yesterday, it occurred to me that I could redefine myself away from competition, i.e. someone who's still setting personal bests or someone who is in better shape than my peers, but instead, someone who chooses to be active every day. If I can be active with others, then I'll tap into that insight about trading competition for connection. Over the last few months, in an effort to balance letting my glute heal with maintaining mental health, I've done various surrogate activities. In that time, I've learned two things. First, that any kind of sweat, any kind of movement, any time outdoors is a good thing. A mix of push-ups, wiffle ball, snail-paced blocks, shooting baskets, and knocking dead branches off trees in the woods have kept me from becoming a middle-aged moper. But second, none of these things gives the same physical relief and emotional payoff as pushing yourself to your limits. Doing something hard feels good, earning that rest afterward feels really good. So while I can intellectually step into the wisdom of redefining myself at my age, emotionally still dragging my feet. Working through important issues with Laura has been one of the best parts of doing Shelter in Place this past year. The crucible of producing an episode reliably forges some new understanding, and working with Alana and Michelle, two talented fellow explorers of the human condition, has been a pleasure. Yet after months of mulling, hours of journaling, pages of free writing, dozens of voice messages, and multiple meetings, I'm still feeling unsure about aging, still struggling to rewire that competitive side of my self-image that's become second nature. I've lost a piece of myself, so I'm not sure now what I'm capable of. I'm surrounded by people who care for me, but I'm not sure anymore who I am. I'm safe for the moment, but I'm not sure what I should do next. So I'm going to look for guidance in this quest to understand aging. Until then, I'll be walking.
2: All my life, people who are older than me have been telling me how I should live my life. The clock is ticking on this decade when I'm supposedly in my prime. I still don't know if the decade I'm in is the best age. I know that in many ways, it's been a good age. There's no standard experience of aging. There's only our experience of aging. I do appreciate hearing other perspectives. There are moments in life when it feels like a gift to step into someone else's well-worn shoes. I want to invite you to share your own story of aging. How does it feel to be your age? How has getting older prompted you to redefine yourself? What do you think it means to be a good age? Reach out to us on our website at shelterinplacepodcast.info, at the handle shelterinplacepodcast on Instagram and Facebook, and at Laura Joyce Davis on Twitter. We can't wait to hear your stories.
0: As always, if you listen to the very end of this episode, you'll hear shelter-in-place outtakes. But first, I want to thank one of our newest supporters. Tony Dor. it's not every day that a Pulitzer Prize-winning author becomes one of our patrons. Even though going to college at Wisconsin meant that my running career wasn't what I'd hoped it would be, I'll never regret it, because it's where I met you. More than 20 years after you were my very first creative writing teacher, I still recommend your work to everyone. And you're just as kind and generous as you were then. In other words, you're still my hero. To all of you, our listeners, we want to say thank you. You're the reason that we're still here. We would be absolutely delighted if you'd subscribe to Shelter in Place wherever you listen and ask your friends to as well. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts so others can find us. If you want to see us continue this work in the coming year, including our apprenticeship program where we're training amazing young women like Alana and Michelle, you can donate on our website, shelterinplacepodcast.info. You can also find information on how to apply to our apprenticeship program and hear audio testimonials from our past apprentices about why this experience has been unlike anything they've ever done before. Shelter in Place is part of the Herdat Media Network. Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions compose our theme song. Additional music and sound effects come from Storyblocks. Nate Davis was the lead writer for this episode with Alana Herlands and Michelle O'Brien as associate editors. Elan Tekle was our assistant producer, and Shweta Watwe was our assistant audio editor. Alana Herlands is our producer, Sarah Edgel is our design director, Nate Davis is our creative director, and our fabulous spring cohort of apprentices are Clara Smith, Elan Tekle, Michelle O'Brien, Samantha Skinner, and Shweta Watwe. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.
2: Have you ever heard of the ingredient bakuchuli?
4: Yes, that's why I love this retinol because it's not just vitamin A. Bakuchuli,
2: Bac- bak, bakuchiali. Baca- <laughs> that. I I truly wasn't expecting you to know what that is.
4: <laughs> but you did. Um, I go intense with my hobbies and.
2: Dude, so me learned. too. Even though it's really fun, there is this element of beauty as a form of currency for women Mm -hmm.
4: the pressure to make your skin so flawless yeah like instead of covering up with makeup now the thing is to prevent imperfections with this very elaborate skincare routine but it's still this endless quest for perfection and retaining your youth because signs of aging hurt women in the workplace and in life, that's where I struggle with how strict I am about skincare because it is fun. Is that because I'm scared of not doing it Mm -hmm. or because it actually is fun?
2: I think it's probably a little bit of both. To me, it's become a ritual where I kind of forget about everything else that I've done during the day. It's oddly relaxing.
4: It's very grounding. I don't know about you, but I apply my products with just my hands, tapping it into your skin. It can be meditative.
2: If we're talking about dream brands, like if I just ever have extra money lying around that is not being used for anything else, skin pseudicals. sometimes I just look at their stuff and I'm like, oh, like the science behind it is so fun. That's
4: how I feel about Tatcha, moisturizer, Mm. but it's such a small jar. Totally. It's so expensive.
2: I mean, it's so interesting thinking about why certain items are more expensive. I think some are more expensive because there's just markups in skincare, but I also think that Some are more expensive because there's been more clinical research done behind it.
4: A really good retinol, I do kind of understand why it's expensive. The process to get the vitamin A is a lot, but also, your girl does not have that money. (laughs) totally. (laughs) And would like to manage my skin problems. A Huda Media Production.